You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Thank you again, Brother Zach, for such a wonderful and warm introduction. And it was a delight to be able to discuss uh, familiar and familiar names and common passions. And so we are grateful for uh, our, actually our paths have crossed in different places and uh, we are delighted to see uh, this brother serving here in this congregation. Our uh, scripture this afternoon is taken from, I want to look at one verse, but I want to walk through uh, several other portions that kind of lead up to this verse. And that's the ninth chapter of the gospel according to Mark. And we'll look at chapter nine, verse 24. That's the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and we'll look at the 24th verse. And it says, Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Amen. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. This is somewhat of a different and difficult statement There's a lot of theology we can extract from it, but here's the beauty of the way that it hangs in God's word. There's no commentary that's given to that statement. Commentators have talked about it, but there is that statement, I believe, help my unbelief. So what we want to first do is just sort of walk real quickly through the circumstances that lead to the statement. And the circumstance is this. Jesus returns from the Mount of Transfiguration. He comes into the camp and he sees that there is a commotion because this man has a son who he says is possessed with the demon that causes him to be mute. There is an interesting theological correlation there because the overarching assumption is that all disease, all disfiguration, all deformity is the result of sin in general. Uh, so it is that, that statement that he has a demon of, uh, that causes him to be mute. It is grounded in a theological truth, and that is if there is no sin, there's no sickness. If there's no sin, there's no deformity. And so the fact that there is a correlation between sickness and our fallen condition, we know that the fallen condition is the result of satanic influence. So it's not to say that everyone who is mute is them, are themselves possessed of the devil, but we know that the devil is the one who tempted our foreparents and caused the, the original sin. In any event, Jesus comes down and his disciples are not able to heal this, this boy. And he goes to Jesus and he says, if you can if you would heal him. It's interesting that in verse 23, Jesus says, if I can. And of course he knows, and so he goes to Jesus for a reason. And he, he goes to him because he, there is a perception, there is an understanding, there is a conviction that he is the promised Messiah. And with the coming of the Messiah is a reversal of those external things that are the cause or that, that emanate from our fallen condition. So the man goes to Jesus and he asks him if he would heal him, if he can. And Jesus says, sure, well, if I can. 
And then he asks, do you believe? And that's what prompts this, this answer on the part of the father. He says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Now, like I said, there's not a whole lot of commentary there. Jesus doesn't even respond to the second part of it. But there are some things that are written in Scripture. There are some things that are captured in poetry and other forms of literature and even in songwriting that when we hear it, it is the expression of something that resonates within us personally. And you hear certain things and you think, Man, that's exactly what I was thinking, or I am so glad that someone said that. And this is one of those statements that I am so glad that this man who said, I believe, also confesses his unbelief. Now, let's walk up to this text, because this is actually the the uh, offshoot of a couple of other events, a couple of significant events that move us towards this wonderful confession because I would argue this, that the belief, this, this tension of believing and maintaining unbelief at the same time is something that will be evident on Palm Sunday when Jesus rides into Jerusalem and people are crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and only a few days later they are crying out, crucify him. There's a tension there that is common, more common than we are perhaps willing to recognize. So if we move backward, I would say that what sets the stage for this is really what takes place at Caesarea Philippi. At Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? They gave various answers, and then he turns to his disciples who had been with him for three years, and he asked, but who do you say that I am? Peter speaks up and says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my father who is in heaven, affirming the fact that what Peter has confessed is the necessary confession unto salvation to recognize, as we would say in Protestant circles, that saving faith recognizes or attaches itself to the person of Jesus Christ and his work. Peter acknowledges that Jesus, the person of Jesus, the person of Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. The person of Jesus is the promised and prophesied Messiah. The two synoptic, two other synoptic gospel writers in recording this event emphasize that almost immediately afterwards, Jesus, now that Peter has confessed his person as the means of salvation, that Jesus then began to teach how it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things at the hands of the religious leaders and to be killed and to be raised on the third day, which is the work of the Messiah. Jesus, so Peter, on the one hand, has confessed that Jesus, the, the, the faith in the person of Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus begins to unpack the work that is associated with that person. And it's at this point that both Mark and Luke say that, or Matthew say that, that Peter took Jesus aside and basically rebuked him and says, no, we'll never let that happen to you. At which point Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. 
because you are concerned about the things of man rather than the things of God. Peter believed, but obviously he had some unbelief when it came to understanding the necessity, even though Jesus himself had been teaching. But when it came to understanding the necessity of the suffering of the Son that he confessed as revealed by the Father. And so as Jesus had told him on the one hand, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven now, he says to him, get behind me, Satan. I believe but help my unbelief. Jesus then moves in the way that Mark records the events. He has chapter 9 opening with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. And to the Mount of Transfiguration, he calls, we see the presence in the disciples, the inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John are there as both Moses and Elijah are present. Moses and Elijah. We're told that they were talking about his upcoming suffering. And oftentimes, and I don't know about you, maybe it's just me, but I often heard this presented in a way where Jesus is almost huddling up with these disciples who have gone on before, these these warriors of old, as if he is being prepared, as if they are consoling him. But, But you think about it, he's Jesus. He is the one whose form has changed. So you think about it, why are Elijah and Moses present as Jesus prepares for his upcoming suffering? They have no words to offer him. Why why does God call these two to visibly, to, to embrace the Savior who would die also for their sins? And you think about it, Moses. Moses was told when the people were complaining about lack of water for the second time, speak to the rock, and the rock would bring forth water. But instead of speaking to it out of his anger and frustration, Moses struck the rock, and the Lord rebuked him. And for that reason, he was told that you will not enter into the promised land. He saved, but he would not enter into that physical promised land that he had led the people all these many years. So before crossing over the Jordan, the Lord takes him up to the top of a mountain and Moses does not get the privilege of entering in. I believe, but help my unbelief. Why Elijah? Elijah stands out as this warrior prophet, this this great prophet who challenged the prophets of Baal. You know on Mount Carmel, he called down fire from heaven and consumed the altar and proved that God was God. And for all of that great work, he got his life threatened and he ran and he fled. And he hid under a, a juniper tree. And the Lord sent Uber Eats to him, sent sent a raven to deliver food for him to eat in his isolation. And at that point, instead of giving thanks to God, God spoke to him in a whirlwind and, 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 and through a fire and then through a still small voice because Elijah was holding a pity party. 
that I am the only one that's left and look at what's happened to me. And the Lord has to remind him that I have over 10,000 who have not bowed a knee to Baal. I believe, but help my unbelief. So in other words, brothers and sisters, my contention would be that the Lord meets with Elijah and meets with Moses before he goes to Calvary so that their eyes could see everything that they hoped for and promised for, everything that God had promised to them that they looked for that that caused them to lead the people of God and speak boldly the word of God, they got a chance to see Jesus in his flesh. In the way where John says, and we beheld him, the word was made flesh, full of grace and truth, and we beheld in him the glory as of the only begotten Son of God. I believe, but help my unbelief. Here's three contentions, three points that we want to make. Number one, the person and work of Christ is the object of our saving faith. The person and work of Christ is the object of our saving faith. What we believe for salvation is that Jesus of Nazareth is the only begotten Son of God. He is the promised, prophesied Messiah. And as such, he has lived for our righteousness. He has died for our sins. He is raised for our justification. And believing that truth saves us. And it transfers us from this earthly kingdom to his heavenly kingdom. So much so that Paul says we are seated with him in heavenly places. Saving faith attaches itself to the person and work of Jesus Christ. But here's the second thing. Although we may possess genuine saving faith, our circumstances can cause us to question and doubt even as we are saved by looking to the finished work of Christ. The reason the words of this father stand out to me, I know we would all love to stand and say how we have never wavered in our faith. It doesn't mean that we will not wonder whether or not God will save us ultimately, but there are points and experiences in our life where no matter who you are, whether you are Elijah or Moses or Peter or even the Apostle Paul, that we will question not necessarily the salvation of our souls, but we are prone to wonder whether or not the Lord is with us and whether or not his grace is sufficient for this particular challenge. Lord, I believe. I believe you love me But sometimes the circumstances of life will make us question whether or not he's with us. And brothers and sisters, sometimes 
because we are saved by a foreign righteousness and not a righteousness of our own. Sometimes we will question whether God can actually love someone as ungrateful as we must be. You see, why is it that we turn away from the will of God? Because sometimes we find satisfaction in that which is against the will of God. And when we, like the prodigal son, are in that pig pen and realize what we're eating is pig food, we will look at ourselves in disgust and knowing that we could never love someone as wretched and as ungrateful as we are, we assume that he wouldn't love us either. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief because the weight of guilt and the concerns that I, I shouldn't be thinking like this. I've said it often in our church that yes, we, we are saved by grace, but there are times that we will not act, talk, or look like a Christian ought. I believe, but help my unbelief. But here's the third and final thing. The good news of the gospel is that he who is the object of our faith is also, as the writer of Hebrews says, the author and finisher of our faith. And therefore, he is the one who is able to strengthen our faith. The beauty of this hanging statement that this father makes is he says, I do believe. I believe in essence that you are able. I believe that you are the son of God. I believe that you are the Messiah. But oh Lord, I still have some stuff that's lingering. And I pray that you would help me in my unbelief. And brothers and sisters, it would be my contention that our growth in grace and our growth in, in holiness and our growth in trusting the promises of God corresponds to God by his grace ministering to the areas of our unbelief we believe that the Lord is good, but through circumstances, he shows us how good he is. And our unbelief, we wrestle with it until the Lord calls us home. John Owen, in his introduction or the early chapters of his classic book, The Death of Death and the, and the Death of Christ, lays out the scenarios and making the case for particular redemption. And he says that he, he says that either Jesus died for all of the sins of all the men, which would be universalism, 
or he dies for some of the sins of all of the people, which is untenable, or he dies for none of the sins of none of the people, again, which is untenable, or he dies for all of the sins of some of the people. And then in that, that, that last proposition that Jesus dies for all of the sins of some of the people, he takes up the Arminian position that says, yes, yes, he has died for everyone, but you must believe. And so Owen goes on in his inimitable style and argues that is not unbelief a sin as well? And the answer to that, yes, unbelief is a sin. He says, therefore, for those whom, for whom Christ has died, if he has died for all of their sins, he has died for the sin of unbelief as well. And so while we may possess genuine saving faith in the person and work of Christ, and the unbelief is not so much that we question or doubt that he is God, and that he is indeed our savior. Cloudy days, lingering sin, and guilt that we can't get rid of will sometimes cause us to wonder if he can love us still. And the good news of the gospel is that he is able and he is, his grace is sufficient even for our areas of weakness. We are not saved by our strength. We're not saved by our resilience. We are saved by the unfading, unchanging righteousness of another. Lord, I believe. And I pray that all of us who have belief unto salvation would continue to offer to the Lord that petition that this man offers, but help my unbelief. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, again, we do thank you for the sufficiency of your word. You know us in our most intimate thoughts. You knew us before we were even born. You loved us while we were yet enemies. And you put us on a path where we could encounter your gospel. And by your spirit, you opened our ears, awakened our hearts that we would hear in your gospel the announcement of your pardon. But we are weak. We still dwell in outward bodies that are perishing day by day. And as such, even though we believe your gospel unto salvation, our circumstances cause us to question and doubt. And some of our choices is simply because we have not trusted enough in some of what you have provided. Strengthen our faith that we would consciously live for your glory 
in gratitude for the grace that you have abundantly poured out in the person of your son. We believe and we confess our unbelief and we ask this in Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. 